five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Good morning. You can tell instantly there's going to be a good and a very special edition of Five in the Eye this week, as it's episode 0293. And yes, it's a prime number. This is me, Michael O'Hooter in London. Welcome you to Comfort Radio's weekly news review show. And this is Phil Woodford joining Michael by Zoom this week and introducing a very special guest. He's an old friend of the show, lawyer, communications consultant, podcaster extraordinaire. It's none other than Mr. Collar Shanaiki. Hi there, Collar. Welcome back to Five in the Eye. Yes, less of the old, thank you. Uh, thanks, <laughs> Phil. Hello there, Mike. Michael, it's great to be back on Five in the Eye. And I can reveal that our top story this week is the aftermath of the Senate's decision to acquit Donald J. Trump on impeachment charges. Uh, what does this decision say about the Republican Party and the future of America? Five in the eye. And for story number two, it's the vexed issue of free speech in universities. The government believes that a commissioner should step in to defend the rights of visiting speakers who have who've been, who've been no-platformed by institutions like this. Others say it's a needless distraction. What's story number three? Well, it's a double first to the World Trade Organization. By appointing Ngozi Okonjo-Awela, the international body simultaneously had its first female and first African director general. We discussed the implications. And is there anything that can lift our COVID blues? The BBC thinks it has the answer in the shape of a comedy festival. That's story number four. I'm so look, not looking forward to that one, but anyway, we'll talk about that. And finally this week, to wrap up the show, archaeologists have discovered a brewery in Egypt that dates from 3100 BC. Yeah, Michael thinks they'll be delivering to us here, but he's in denial. Do you get it? He's in denial. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. <laughs> it's moving that on. And that's this week's Five in the Eye. Five in the Eye. Okay, well, we're going to kick off this week with um, the extraordinary scenes in the US Senate, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Um, seven, we, 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 I suppose we should say brave-ish Republicans uh, voted with the Democrats to convict him of the charges. Uh, to use a, a well-known piece of legal terminology, Collar, I think it's fair to say that Donald Trump was banged to rights on uh, on this, wasn't he? Because we had, um, uh, you know, we had all the video of him stirring up the crowd to uh, march on the Capitol uh, building. And, you know, everyone knew that he was guilty of encouraging this insurrectionist activity. But fundamentally, the Senate split along partisan lines and just not enough GOP senators were prepared to convict to bring that two-thirds majority that was needed. So what's your reaction? Is it what you expected? And where does this leave the Republicans? Where does it leave America? So, Phil, how about a little bit of dissent? That's D-I-S-S, by the way, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> um, because I, I mean, so Donald Trump needed to be impeached. He needed to be out of there. There's so many things that he has done that justify and justified his removal. But I'm going to do a little bit of, I guess, controversy or disagreement because actually, if you look at the charges that he was kind of impeached for, the things he was impeached for, and it was primarily, although not exclusively, based on kind of the final act of his speech where he said everybody marched down to the Capitol. 
you could not establish that as a criminal case, in my view. If you actually went to court and tried to prosecute him, where you'd have to prove intent and all of those things, and that he incitement is really about essentially really telling people go and do it as opposed to hinting inferring that kind of thing being reckless with your language uh i don't think he would be convicted in a criminal court i could see michael trying to jump in. i'm going to plow on i don't think he'd be he'd be convicted in a criminal court and i think if you're not going to be convicted in a criminal court i think it should be close to the same bar it's not exclusively the same thing but close to the same bar for impeaching and removing a president so I agree with the impeachment and I'll tell you kind of why ultimately I did. But actually, I'm not in the camp of that what he did was so obviously criminal that that should also lead to his removal as president. The reason I get there anyway is because I don't believe that criminality is the be all and end all of impeaching a president. So I think there's a lower um, or there's a wider bar rather than a lower bar. So uh, that's me starting off with a little bit of dissent and controversy. How's that? No, but, but, Colin, I'm shocked. Shocked you say uh-huh. that. Impeachment is nothing to do with criminality. It's not to do... It, it, that's not a real court where you've got the jurors giving testaments and advising the opposition. No, that, that, that is not a real court. The Senate is not a real court. Impeachment, it's a political decision. It's a political decision. And I'm sorry, Colin, no question, guilty. Guilty as seen. You know, he, he, you know, we'll march down Capitol on Pennsylvania Avenue. He told them what to do. He told them, you know, yeah. so no question, guilty. You know, this high crimes and this, this misdemeanors, that's what they put into the Constitution because they, 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 they were saying that it's not, about, it's not about laws. It's about crimes that against the democracy, against the Confederacy, against, against the Republic, against the Republic. And, so, and that's, so that's the part I agree with, right? And that's why I say I get there for impeachment. But the way it was being framed was that he's committed a crime, and that's why we're impeaching the crime of incitement to insurrection, that kind of thing. And actually, just as a legal purist, you would not, and I will bet you this, he will not be actually prosecuted for that. They may sue him in civil court because there's a lower bar, but he will not be prosecuted for it in criminal finish on this. Look, oh. this is this is pure. You are you've been like a Republican. <laughs> right. years and it's about whatism. What about this? What about listen, he was wrong, wrong, wrong. What he did was just outrageous for a president. You agree on that? Thank you. Yeah, um, completely. Exactly. So it's against what, 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 from the legal pure, from the legal purist point of view, though, 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 Collar, and mm-hmm. because we got you here, and you're a lawyer, and you, you can give us this kind of insight. I mean, what about the the Republican defense, initial defense, which was actually the whole trial was unconstitutional ah. because he'd left, he'd already left office. But when when the when this um, idea of impeachment was written into the Constitution, the assumption was it was always there to remove someone who was currently in office, not to retrospectively um, prosecute someone who'd already left office. I mean, don't don't you think they had a bit of a case with that? So my legal uh, analysis of those arguments is poppycock. (laughs) Total and utter poppycock. Considered. Because the, if you, and the, the Democratic managers, House managers, did a brilliant assessment of this and presentation of this issue. 
and basically looked at it in many different ways. So firstly, at the time the constitution was written, what did impeachment uh, mean and what did it provide for? And all the precedents at the time from Britain, which is what they based it on, actually provided for the removal um, and disbarment uh, only, even of people after they had left. And on top of the precedents that existed, they actually used it afterwards to impeach somebody who, in fact, did almost exactly what Trump is trying to argue, which is he wasn't, he wasn't, I think he was the Secretary of State or something. He knew he was about to impeach and he raced down to the White House and tendered his resignation to stop the impeachment. And the Senate had a trial of the issue of whether or not you could impeach somebody after they'd left office. And they concluded that, yes, you can. And then there's a whole load of other precedent precedents as well. Of it, being it didn't, done. didn't so, happen with Nixon, though, did it? No, I mean, but, Nixon, but that's Nixon, put, Nixon put in his resignation less. Yeah, that? yeah. So that was the end of it, wasn't it? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, no, I was going to say yes. So it didn't happen because, for political reasons, very often you won't want to, but it can happen. So even John Adams, uh, who was one of the founding fathers, said, kind of close to his deathbed, like I have always conducted myself in the sure knowledge that at any point in time I could be impeached for my conduct whilst president. So it's like if you if you're textualist with the Republicans say they are and you believe in you must be strict to what it says. When it says impeachment um, and I can't remember the terminologies, but disbarment again, it's not you can only do those things. It's you can do either. So it was a total nonsense argument, um, and the Republicans know it. They're just trying to get out of having to vote for it. But but, but Adams and Nixon were politicians. Mm-hmm. They were aware of the public mood. They were they were a part of a democracy, and dare I say, they had some sense of guilt and shame. Trump and the Republican Party have no sense of either, no sense of, and they've debased words, debased words. You know, you know when when um, Mel Garman was 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 going to be, was uh, was up for um, Supreme Court judge, and it was a year before Obama was leaving office, and they said, "No, it wouldn't be right that an offer that a prime uh, president in the last year can appoint a, a Supreme Court judge." They went, "What? What did they with this? What did they do within weeks of one dying, and within within months of of uh, of, of, of Trump going out of office, they appointed one? They went back on the word, the word, no sense of shame." I think what about, what about Mitch, Mitch McConnell? I mean, the, the 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 Republican leader McConnell, Mitch McConnell. I mean, this this guy is is is, is extraordinary, isn't he? He can, um, on the one hand, recognise that Trump uh, was guilty, um, um, but then argue that he wasn't going to he wasn't going to vote to convict he's spent the whole time of Trump's presidency propping up Trump, um, and then. Um, turns on him afterwards. I mean, what credibility do these people have anymore? Shot, it's shot to pieces, surely, in the eyes of any moderate Republican who's not a who, who's who's not a Trump fanatic. Yeah, I, I think actually that you've nailed it, both of you, because actually the biggest guardrail for democracy is shame, and if you don't have that, which means you're prepared to do anything. And if other people don't have the shame, which means they're not providing the kind of the, you know, the barriers to you doing all sorts of things, you can get away with anything if you have the majority. And that's why things change when the Senate don't have the majority. And yeah, Mitch McConnell, that guy is a genius of political maneuvering. Because if you think about it, he just won re-election, which means he's got another six years, and he won it comfortably, despite everybody kind of hating on on him ineffectively. And I think he has actually now made a political calculation that 
Trump on balance, once now that he's out of office and has no power, is a bad thing for the Republican Party. So he's gradually kind of moving himself away from from the Republican um, from from the Trumpist kind of kind of wing. But they're in for a real battle. But I think what he said on the floor of the Senate after he had voted to acquit Trump are all the reasons why I believe Trump was rightly impeached and rightly convicted. Because as Michael was saying, what he did was an affront to democracy. And what he did led to the riots. But it wasn't just that one speech. It was everything he had done before, uh, which, again, kind of the Democratic House managers did a good job of doing. So I think McConnell is threading a tight needle based on lack of shame, total political power maneuvering, and the fact that he's got another six years anyway, so he really doesn't care. Well, thank you. I'm going to come back to the Republican Party and Trump, I'm sure. But I want to move on to story number two. Five in the eye. And story number two is about free speech, or the lack of free speech in our universities. What the government wants to do, they want to actually compensate, compensate people who have been no-platformed. These are people who want to speak on controversial issues, and, and they're, not, they're denied by the university. Or, or, this, or you know, most, most times students, they're being, oh, actually not quite true. Sometimes the, the, you, the um, lecturers don't like the, like the speakers, but either way, they've been no platform. So what, what Gavin Williamson is saying, no, these people are gonna be compensated. And this idea of going into universities and managing who can speak and who can not speak, I find outrageous. You know, I, I fall back on that. I know he, he didn't say it, but I'm gonna quote him, Voltaire. I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That sense of free speech, and I, mean, I don't think free speech in the, in, the first, in the First Amendment, because the Second Amendment is the right to bear arms. You don't bear arms in, in Britain. We are, free speech is free speech. I'm not gonna get shot by some lunatic with a gun because he's got a right to bear arms. That, that's fundamental. That speaker's corner mentality, where you can stay there and say what you like. Say what you like. That, that, that's fundamental to who we are in, in Britain. So I'm, I'm so against this, so against this. Yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not appeasing to, to all these Islamic phobist people, these anti-gay people, these, these racists. I'm not approving of them. But at the same time, we cannot say, no, you can't speak. We're going we're gonna to suppress your speech. has to be out in the open. So no, I'm for it. So Collar, you're smiling there, Collar. You're that nodding smile of, you know, well, you're, whatever you're going to say, you're wrong. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I was just going to repeat my um, famous legal principle uh, <laughs> of poppycock. <laughs> um, but actually, no, it, but more in terms of um, this whole let us introduce this issue, because for me, it's a non-problem that they are trying to solve. Because, so in fact, let me, I look this up, right? So in 2017, 2018, there were 62,094 requests for external speakers made by students. I think the students invite them, right? 62,094 requests made for external speakers by students. How many of them were rejected? Go on, there's my, my guess, guess to you. How many of them I, were I, actually... I, I presume it's a handful. More than a handful, so I'll help you there. Okay, I, I've, no, I've no idea, Connor. I think you're going to have to help us out. A two-handful then, a two-handful. It was 53. Mm -hmm. 53 out of 62,000. What's the problem? 
It's a problem that doesn't need, doesn't exist. That doesn't need to be solved. The system is working fine. Leave it alone. Thank you. Okay. I mean, but what, what about the high profile cases that we have heard about, for instance, you know, Amber Rudd, the former Home Secretary, uh, being uh, cancelled from her talk at Oxford, for example. Um, that, that was one. That was w- one high-profile example. Now, I don't agree with Amber Rudd. Um, she, she, her politics and mine are not the same. Uh, she strikes me as the kind of woman that I probably wouldn't want to be more than five minutes in a room with because I wouldn't have anything in common with her. But. Is there any justification for any students or academics saying that she should not appear? What about the philosophy professor, Kathleen Stock, who has complained that when she uh, stands up for, uh, for, um, the, uh, for, for women's rights in the face of all the uh, campaigning on gender recognition and so on, that she is being silenced are we are we kind of missing something here because i think there is a culture an increasing culture of intolerance that we see uh so i don't agree in this way so free speech is different to being deplatformed and by that means so free speech is actually or the right to free speech is basically government won't interfere with me saying stuff right it's not other institutions private companies, whatever it is, cancelling me before I say first. If, if I say something, the government shouldn't get the police on me or arrest me or prosecute me because I've said something, unless it's totally outrageous like Trump, right? Um, so that's the issue. Free speech, this is not a free speech issue because nothing is stopping her saying exactly what she wants to say, Amber Rudd or whoever else, on anywhere else she wants to say, it, including her own social media or going to other debates. Oxford don't have you, go to Cambridge. I know Oxford is the main one, whatever. But, you know, so that's not a free speech issue. I think there is an issue with um, kind of a general inability to allow discourse to take its course, Mm. right? Which is to allow debate, accepting, almost have a safe space that says, like sometimes we do like family debate, right? You know, when if 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 we've been like climbing up the walls and at each other, I will call a family debate. And the debate is anything goes in this space, you can say whatever is on your mind and it won't come back at you, right? And that gives the freedom to say, okay, look, let's just say what I... Yeah, five I in the eye is in love, Lawrence, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but so basically, it's like, look, in this space, you can say what's on your mind, even if it's an unformed thought, right? Even if it's provocative or controversial, because we're not going to take it outside of this space, which is this, the place where we can just explore things, because we accept that that process of exploring ideas is actually how we come to a better outcome all around. So I think there is an issue with people not being, not treating treating that debate space as sacred. Because you make a good point. Sorry. No, no, that's what I was going to say. It's just not a free speech issue. It's a kind of, I guess they'll say cultural wall issue, but I don't like that either. But but, but, but in the in what's happening when you have your phone debate? People are listening, and they're open. I think what this is really aimed at and I think it's a bit of a blunderbuss to try and do it, is where nobody's listening. Nobody's listening. They, 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 come, they come to that meeting with their view. In fact, they've come already to protest whatever the person says by, his very, by their very presence, be it Amber Rudd or whoever. 
I'm not going to listen to you. And, yeah. and that for me is where the universities, I don't, I used to, I, this is me and my bucolic moment, where you will you'll have an open mind. You'll think, you'll listen to what the person said. Yeah, but I think generally they are. That's why I say, right, 53 out of 69,000. It ain't that big a problem. And it's just the ones that get the profile, get blown up as, oh, so this is happening all the time, where actually it just clearly isn't. So I think I think I like the idea. You know, I used to watch the things with, you know, James Baldwin when he had debates at Oxford and, you know, even Malcolm X would come in and speak and things like that. And you really do want that space to allow for debate with people that you fundamentally disagree with, but nevertheless have a space where you can have that. I guess the, the same issue then is comes with Louis Farrakhan, who I disagree with a lot of what he says, right? <laughs> but he has been de- deplatformed. He li- literally is persona non grata for all of these institutions. You see, man, I, 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 I would argue... I, I, he's done from Britain. Which is which yeah. is outrageous. But I mean, I, I would argue that that of course there are limits to this. I mean, I, I think it is quite acceptable to say that if someone is going to come and, you know, stir up or incite, say, racial hatred or something like that, that we have the ability to say we don't want this person here. The question is for me, Ooh. where the question <laughs> is for me, where the lines get drawn, and um, you know, I don't believe, for instance, that. Amber Rudd is so beyond the pale that she shouldn't appear at a university. When when you say um, when, when you say it's not about free speech, Colin, because people can express their free their free speech elsewhere, I would argue my, my counter to that would be: Isn't this debate about the fact that universities are supposed to be bastions of free speech, and this, these are the very places where you would expect such free speech to happen? Goodness, Mr. Woodford, I think you should take up law. That's a very good argument. Um, I hadn't actually cola, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, had, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. Um, I don't think it quite extends to that, but I do see I do see your point about that universities, and in a way, that is the place. It's called discipline for a reason, right? It's disciplining your mind. That's the place you're supposed to explore all issues. Um, so there is something to be said about that. I, I'm still not convinced that it is a free speech issue where um, you are still able to express it elsewhere without repercussions. So I think that's 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 why I, I still don't um, agree with it as a free speech issue. But um, the point you were making about, yes, if you're going to espouse certain hatreds. I, so my issue with that is not that I disagree, but that line is just so easily traversed that in a way I kind of think that you are better off having a space in which everybody understands this is a space you can say what you want, including hatred for what it sounds like hatred. If we accept that this is a space where it doesn't go further. The reason I say that's because there's so many things that 30 years ago might've been seen as heresy or whatever, Mm. that 30 years later, because of that discourse, you realize that actually, no, you know, Nelson Mandela was seen as a terrorist at the time, right? But then you look back at what they were doing, you say, no, actually, they needed to do what they did and so forth. So I'm a little concerned about the let's ban people who are clearly espousing hatred, because I think one man's kind of hatred speech is another man's you know, empowerment speech. Colin, do you think this is the government responding to what's happening on social media, where People are saying the most outrageous things to to, to, to people. You, you look at what's happened then with um, 
uh, footballers, the black footballers are being attacked, or we look at Mary Beard as a woman being attacked, and that, and and then of Trump, your man Trump, you know the things he's been saying. So these the, the, they've been deplatformed. The, that the the, the Twitter etc. have taken responsibility and, and brought these people down. They de, in fact they're using the same terminology. They deplatform them. So may, may I may I repeat that. may I repeat my legal principle again? <laughs> This whole right wingers are deplatformed is again total nonsense. Because if you look at the top kind of most popular, most shared um, uh, people or links or posts, it is always right wing stuff. And if you look compare the number of um, kind of left wing or liberal people that are deplatformed, if they have said similar things, it's, there's just nothing. It's, this is, and I think what it actually is in terms of bringing this in is, is the, in America, there's a whole big thing of culture wars, mm. which is kind of a little bit here, but not hugely. And I think it is the government seeing that that is a way to get your people staying with you, even if your policies are rubbish, <laughs> that they're kind of trying to introduce that idea of there's a culture war so that they keep the, the conservative right-wing element with them for all future politics. That's yeah, I mean, I, I do tend to think that at the moment, maybe a bigger priority for the government would be working out how to get students back into the universities because of Thank the COVID-19 yeah. Uh, pandemic. Yeah, yeah. But um, I will no doubt return to the culture war issues in another show. Time now to move on to story number three. Uh, yes, which is a one for me I'm really excited about, which is um, Ngonzi Okunjo-Wela being, uh, I guess, chosen, appointed, elected to the position of Director General of the World Trade Organization. Five in the eye. Uh, she had been, I think, in a fight, I guess, or a battle with a Korean, I think, nominee. Uh, and there were concerns because President Trump's administration had not given her uh, his their backing. So with the removal of Trump, and I think the Biden administration has put their um, kind of weight behind her. And so she has been appointed, which makes her both the first female director of the w- WTO, which has been... Uh, in existence since 95, I think it is. And then the first African director of the WTO as well. Uh, and she says her focus is going to be really on trade. And also, I think she has a kind of emergency focus on getting the COVID vaccine uh, kind of widely distributed, including to to the um, uh, less less kind of uh, developed or able countries to, to buy it. So uh, great thing, great thing, in my view. I wonder what you guys think. I think it's just extraordinary. Because, you know, one, a woman, a black woman, an African black woman, are you just going to say yes, yes, yes? Because I don't know, anyone who's had any experience of African women or Nigerian women in terms of getting things done, yes. making things happen, then she is the one. Because they have a certain, a certain way of getting away. It's and it's beyond feminine charm. It's a sense of purposefulness and direction, and dare I say, threat. But we won't go into that. No, I think it's fabulous. Particularly when you look around the world, you know the women in charge. And this, I just okay, I'm I'm, I'm being submissive here, but I've, I've, I'm comforted by it. You know, you look at we got Legrand in the, the, in, the um, in the the central bank. 
We've got uh, the, the woman in 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 um, uh, you know, Lagarde. In, Lagarde. Uh, the, uh, the, Christine Lagarde. Christine Lagarde. Yeah. yeah. Christine Lagarde. The fact the fact that the, um, uh, well, the, I'm talking about this I'm in the, in the European community. I'm talking about Ursula van der Leyen, where she actually apologised. And this is, you know, women, they admit mistakes and move on. Like blokes, bear grudges, start wars. <laughs> so this is fabulous news. But having said that, okay, thank you, madam. Thank you, madam. I'm, I'm respecting you. But come on, what a job she's got. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think an, an interesting aspect of this, I mean, obviously it, it's a very positive development and, and um, I'm sure um, that in terms of both kind of um, the, the, her, her profile um, as a, a black person and as a, a woman in this high-profile role, it's got to be good. But it, it's also reflective, isn't it, of probably the way in which world trade is changing and the balance of power in world economies is shifting. And the fact that Af many African nations have been fast-growing economies in recent in recent years and that we're seeing a kind of long-term shift away from uh, the the power structure of, uh, of the, that's perhaps in America and Western Europe so dominant to China, Asia, Africa, and so on. Do you think that's part of what's going on here? Well, that is part of it, but I think that the, there's, there's a, she's coming at a really, really, really the Chinese curse for interesting times. You've got the dual whammy of China and America at war with you. I'll come back to China in a moment. But we've got this pandemic and the distribution of vaccine. That is a fundamental thing that the, these, org, these world organizations have got to get sorted, no question. UN, the World Health Authority, the World Trade Authority, they've got to get that sorted, no question. If they don't do that, then they're not fit for purpose. Not fit for purpose, yeah. that's their primary function. Yeah. So, not, oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah, go on. China. China. Do you know China is still a developing nation? You know, and, and this is, this is I, I've got to take a deep breath when I say this. I agree with Trump. You know, there's something wrong where China is seen as a developing nation. You know, okay, Clinton let them in, brought them into the, world, the WTA because he thought that was right. Because at the time, they were normally a developing nation. But we've moved on. China is subsidizing America's debt now. You know, this is this is it's almost like Bank of Mum and Dad. You know, <laughs> Michael, we've also we've also talked before, haven't we, about the you know the huge economic and political influence that China has over the continent of Africa yeah. through through its investments and so on. And what do you do you think that Mongolia uh, Kondrowaela would would her position would, would, on that would be regarding the kind of relative power relationships between, say, the African continent and this global superpower China? Colin, do you have a view on that? China and Dr. Ngozi have an opportunity here to really seal it up. China has a vaccine that I can give to the world much and produce at a volume that could sort out Africa. So she's got a, yeah. she's got, she can finesse a position here, you know, bring China. I find quite chilling in the one sense, China just rising to the, to the top there. It, it's got Africa in its pocket because it gave, it, it sort of the vaccine issues and, it, and, and so, to a certain extent, the rest of the world. She's, she's in a very powerful position with China and China with that vaccine out there. It's just these are extraordinary times. So I think that the, the Africa-China issue, because the, the, for me, I'm, I'm annoyed at Africa and China and Africa. But I can see the kind of big, this this vaccine finessing it all. 
and making it, you know, good. Yeah, it's so it's an opportunity for her, but it's also a very big worry that there's so many competing issues in regards to China and Africa. So the thing that I like that China did on the one hand is when they basically saw Africa as a place to invest and effectively get their commodities in return, uh, they approached it very different to the West. So the West would give aid and support on the condition of certain policies or certain democratic principles of governance, right? Which just as we can see even from what the US has been through, you can't just say, do this, you know, form of politics and it works. It has to evolve, it has to grow and be right. And so a lot of countries would get themselves into trouble because they would take the aid or the support on the condition of certain things that really just weren't quite right for them at that time. China came in and said, don't care about all of that. Here's what we'll give you. You give us what we want. Do with it what you will. Uh, So on the one hand, that's very liberating. But on the other hand, it actually has encouraged some of the worst impulses in in our governments in Africa who do a terrible job of protecting their own people. And that's the concern I then have with China saying, oh, we've got the vaccine here. We can give it to you in return for this or whatever it is. Um, And so I have a bit of concern about that that particular dynamic. Um, I wonder actually how much bite and power and teeth the WTO has at all, such that um, uh, Dr. Ngozi, who's a brilliantly capable woman, and she's achieved a lot and made some real kind of impact in the role she's had at the World Bank when she was finance minister of Nigeria. But I just wonder actually whether the WTO has enough teeth in the face of superpowers, right? If America says, I'm not, I'm withdrawing, I'm doing it, what can they do? If China says, as it has for you know decades now, this is what we're going to do, actually, how much do they do they have to to change things? Um so I I, I hope she does well, but we'll see. Live in the eye. Story number four this week, we've been struggling through the COVID, it seems to go on and on and on. Uh, just when we think we're getting out the out the, the, the deep end of the pool, we, we sort of plunge back into it again. No one knows quite when it's going to be over. Do we need something to relieve the stress and the tension? The BBC thinks that it comes in the form of a comedy festival. Um, and Michael's shaking his head at me here. <laughs> he doesn't approve of comedy. I mean, j- just because your own jokes backfire on five in the eye, Michael, doesn't mean that other people shouldn't have a go. The, the whole idea of you will laugh, this is a comedy festival. You know, I'm, it just, it seems sort of fabricated. It does, it doesn't seem natural. And, and let me throw a bit of a curveball. I'm not like our friend here. I'd want to see balanced humour. I want to see right-wing humour in there. Come on, we've got all these left. You lefties will be having your wit. You'll be very well. Hard. So it's funny you say that. Actually, um, I'm less concerned about right wing, left wing humor. I actually don't know what right wing humor is. <laughs> is. Is there one? Is there such a thing? But what I I did notice, which gave me a little bit of concern, but I'll wait to see how it pans out, is a lack of of diversity in terms of black and um, ethnic minority comedians. So I was looking at the list, and you had John Cleese, Eddie Izzard, Stephen yeah. Fry. Yeah, great stalwarts. Um, but I'd like to see some great up-and-coming black comedians. The number of black uh, actors and comedians that just ship out to the States 
because they just aren't getting the platform and profile here being deplatformed here basically I looked at the, the the graphic for it and it was very white it was. Yeah. and I thought this is me because I'm so I'm so used to now seeing the diversity thing and everything so gratuitous diversity what you mm-hmm. see the opposite of it it just seems wrong yeah. but then with respect aren't they in a kind of a no-win situation <laughs> if they put them in you're only putting them in black people or gay people and just to be tokenistic. When they no, don't, where you, are no, the you, you can't. You, no, because there are some incredibly talented ones, right? You're not putting in people who aren't actually no, funny. Well, You're just saying, "Hey, listen to this comedy from this person, and you will laugh as well." Because comedy is universal. Comedy is is, is just you know highlighting the absurd and twisting it further. But do you think? Do you think that comedy has transferred, you know, I mean, to to the online world in the way that some other things have? Because there's a, there's a, a a lot of comedians and the up and coming comics they rely on a circuit, don't they? They they mm. go out and they perform at, at gigs and live venues, and this is and maybe they work towards going to festivals like Edinburgh and these kinds of places to make their name. And that's all been that the rug has been pulled out from under them, hasn't it? Because of COVID, and and, and is it the same? If I'm listening to someone doing some stand-up routine on Zoom, is it the same thing? Well, so it's interesting you say that. I I I think that they, like everyone else, are going to have to figure out how to just migrate online and do it well. So, like Netflix has been buying up comedians left, right, and center and giving them shows. Dave Chappelle's done one. London Hughes is a really talented uh, black female comic from here. Is now in the states and she's got a Netflix deal. And then I think you can have your own social media. I've started um, just joined Clubhouse, and I'm doing a show um, on that as well. Uh, and I, I think that's going to be a great you space. You just drop that in. Sorry, but I'm being rude. Yes. You've been invited to join Clubhouse. Not only have I been invited, I'm invite hosting a show. Oh, I'll I'll send you an invite, Michael. Don't worry. As long as you promise not to be too controversial, I might be platform. Are Elon Musk and Vladimir Putin turning up? We read that, that the clubhouse was where they were likely to... Likely yeah, to exactly. But, you know, comedians could do could literally start up there and say, right, I'm doing a weekly live show there, you know, and stuff like that. So I think they just have to learn to migrate to different platforms and build up their following that way. And then it becomes direct where they're not dependent on Edinburgh Festival or whatever. You, you, you mentioned that London Hughes. I've got, I've got to talk Gina Yashire. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh come on. She she could she's she's gay and she's she's got a night she's Nigerian, she's black, and she's proud of both, and she's yeah. in your face over both, and she's so funny. Yeah. She just she's just brilliant. So yeah. she's she should be in there. In fact, we'll start a campaign now. <laughs> but I, I like the idea, right? Comedy is is great. I actually will often listen on I'll go for a walk and just put in some stand-up, like some old Richard Pryor or something, and you'll see me walking down the road literally laughing, people looking at me like I'm crazy. But it's so therapeutic just to laugh. And I think we need, after 2020 and first half of 2021, it looks like, I think we need to laugh. Ha, ha, ha. No, <laughs> thank you for that, Cole, you're right. We're going to finish off this, uh, this 293 Prime episode edition of Five in the Eye with a story about beer. Five in the eye. Ancient beer, in fact, the truly ancient beer. This is Egyptian beer because archaeologists have discovered a beer factory next to a burial chamber. Now, apparently, 
they would, this is part of the burial ritual. They brew beer and have a drink. Now, that sounds a bit familiar to me. I mean, I heard of drinking yourself into a grave, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> awake. What is awake? So imagine having, not just bringing a couple of bottles in for the, you know, to, to send off the good man or the good lady. You bring in a brewery. Now that's class. <laughs> but I have a brewery for you. I assume the idea was, you know, you send your loved ones to the afterlife with the things that they will need to live or to say live to to spend the rest of their lives. So what better than beer on tap? <laughs> yeah, I mean, with Michael, it'd be a crate of Cronenberg sixteen sixty four. Is that right? Oh, <laughs> Actually, I'd like a I'd rather like dry Chardonnay to be honest with you, or maybe a Cabernet Sauvignon. You know? Actually, that's true. If you had to be buried with a tipple of your choice, what would it be for you guys? <laughs> what about you, Phil? Yeah, it would be. Uh, it would probably my tipple of choice would be some nice red wine. I think, yeah, like a Rioja or something like like, like that. Probably, you know, I have very sophisticated tastes as you'd expect. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine, mine would be a Lagavulin whiskey scotch just there that would be me for eternity i wouldn't even get up (laughs) so would you take take the whole distillery with you or just a couple of bottles uh i mean i as long as i there's some way because this is eternity we're talking about right so as long as as there is enough i don't care whether it's an everlasting bottle or a distillery where i have to kind of work out how to do it myself but i need my need my whiskey and sorry, guys, if, if I've got if I've got my Chardonnay, not actually, it'd be Cabernet Sauvignon. I've got to have my bag of uh, crisps, ideally plain salted, you know, the Good. thick ones, handmade. Not, not porky them. scratchings there. Yeah, yeah. It's strange because these archaeologists, they didn't find any frazzles, did they, at this site in Egypt? I don't think. <laughs> yeah, they're, not looking hard enough. they're not looking hard enough. They're there because you, you can't have a glass of wine without a nice crisp. Come you on. guys are very sophisticated. I'm a beer and whiskey man myself. I mean, I, I do wine, but only for meals. So, so you just have the whiskey. What, what do you have with it? A cigar? Wait, okay, I thought you were going to say, what do I have with the whiskey, like ice or something? Even no, yes, uh, a good cigar uh, with a great tip. I heard from a friend who'd got it from Cuba, which is you dip uh, the end of the cigar, not the the smoking end, obviously, but the end you, you used uh, in a bit of honey. And then smoking, oh, and you get the cigar plus the, the sweetness of the honey as well. That sounds so decadent. You with your glass of whiskey, <laughs> yes. your yeah. whiskey there with your big Cuban cigar. God, yes. capitalism made real. That's what it's all about. Five in the eye. Well, that's it for episode 0293. I think our ancient Egyptian beer has probably matured long enough now for us to have a well deserved sip. Thanks so much to our special guest, Kola Shanaiki, for joining us on the show and giving us his unique perspective on the week's news. Thank you guys for having me and not deplatforming me. <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> Next week, we're going to welcome another old friend of the eye. Yes, oh. ABK. Regular listeners will know she can be relied upon for a controversial opinion or two or three or four or five. <laughs> In the meantime, please do visit our Facebook page if you want to get in touch. It's where we post all the stories we hope will the stories that caught our eye and hopefully they'll catch your eye. For now, this is Phil Woodford signing off for another week and inviting you to join us again next Friday for episode 0294. And this is Kolari Lishunaike saying goodbye and wishing everyone a great week ahead. And of course, this is me, Michael Ohidjuri, saying as ever, if you have been, 
Thanks for listening. Stay tuned to Coho for a great music throughout the day. Bye-bye. Five in the Eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?